Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Med- Medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This podcast may contain adult themes, strong language, and stupid health advice. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to In Bad Taste, where we cast a critical eye over health documentaries and the claims they make. I'm your host, registered nutritionist Pixie Turner. And I'm cardiothoracic surgeon Dr. Nikki Stamp. Each month we're watching those health films that keep invading your Netflix and deciphering the claims that they make over four episodes. And yet again this week we are taking a look at Fed Up, part health documentary, part political movement wannabe. That's right. Last week, we cut through some of the bullshit around sugar, which is this film's nominated villain. To be honest, it's not just this film that is super obsessed with making sugar the bad guy. Sugar has been blamed for pretty much everything in the last few years. It really has, hasn't it? It is like the current Disney villain of the wellness set. But this week, we're leaving sugar behind and we're going to talk about fat. Not the fat that we eat, but about fatness, because this film has some pretty big ideas about that. Oh, yes. And as we mentioned in last week's episode, we're trying not to be assholes and we're going to be using terms like fat or bigger bodies or larger bodies in accordance with the fat acceptance movement. But there are times when we might say things like the word uh, obese because we're quoting people, we're quoting research, uh, and we will talk about weight, of course. And when we do, we will explain why or in what context and hopefully it will all make sense. Also, again, as we talked about in last week's episode, we need to use the language that people prefer to use for their own bodies, not assume that we know better than they do. Everyone is entitled to their own language and their own needs. Basically, we are trying to bring you the science, but we're also really recognizing that we are both in very privileged bodies and that we need to be sensitive and recognizing of that. Yes, something that a lot of these films definitely don't do. So let's um, let's get started with I think one of the, the the crux of the of the film really is what is making people fat. I think that's probably what they're, they're banging on the most about. And of course, mm-hmm. as we've already discussed, in their mind, the answer is sugar. Sugar is causing you know all of the things to go wrong in the world. Um, and I think we we talked a bit about this in all of the things. All of the things. I mean, you th- think of the last thing bad that happened to you you know when you got a red light when you're rushing to get somewhere that was sugar um (laughs) like that is that's kind of the narrative that they're trying to sell here um and as we've discussed you know surprise surprise life is a lot more complicated than that but one of the one of the the main things they're talking about is is about um is about weight um and that our weight is going up Uh, as a society sugar is is the the cause of all this um and the answer is to therefore cut out sugar preferably through a uh some sort of weird political movement and bill clinton's involved again um (laughs) 
But I think what they really, what they really, really miss out on here, and what I think a lot of um, a lot of discussions around weight in the um, in the media, on social media, by wellness gurus, by diet companies, diet cultures, um, some fitness professionals, not all, obviously. We know there are good good humans out there in all of these all of these fields. But one of the things that they they really simplify this down to is that it's always one thing. There's always one thing as the root cause of weight. Mm-hmm. But the reality is just it's just not that simple at all. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think anyone who suggests that there is one single one single solution to a very complex problem or one single cause of a very complex problem clearly just doesn't understand it in the slightest. You can sell so many books and people have sold so many books based on this idea that there is one single cause or contributor to weight and that therefore there is one single thing you need to do to what you're eating in order to lose weight. There have been so many empires that have been built on this and they are all in some ways wrong and all all using the same kernel of truth, but adding a whole layer of bullshit onto it that then leads to something that is basically pseudoscience at the end of it. We know that there are so many different factors that contribute to someone's weight. There is this great model known as the foresight obesity model, which has a huge map essentially of every single factor that can influence someone's Mm. weight. And when you look at it, It looks like someone sneezed on a page. It is an absolute mess. There are so many different factors that all play a role, that all interconnect as well, so much so that they've had to color code it into different sections. I I would recommend that you Google it and have a look because it is just so complicated. So to suggest that sugar is the one thing that is driving all of these different factors and all of these different contributors to someone's weight, is actually firstly really wrong and secondly really fucking insulting to be honest and also just on the back of that i mentioned some research last week that looked at which nutrients contribute to weight gain and i mentioned that sugar only had a weak association with weight gain and that even then it disappeared when you corrected four things like physical activity and total food consumption what this research also showed is that fat is a more significant contributor to energy excess than sugar which flies in the face of everything that this movie says now what this what this mainly pointed out is that there there are certain foods, not nutrients, certain foods that contribute most to energy excess in the UK specifically, and they are refined flour products, vegetable oil fats, and cereal-based products. These are these are foods that are very cheap, they are widely available, and they are also really, really delicious. Now, based on this, you might think that this is all about calories in versus calories out. And it I think it can easily look like that, sure. But that is just the bare, bare minimum. Saying that excess energy contributes to weight gain is kind of obvious. I think there is no one who would necessarily dispute that, that it can contribute to that. But I think we have to understand the barriers that are preventing people from eating more balanced, nutritious diets. Mm. These are namely things like the causes of, of causes, as they're known, or social determinants of health. These are all the different factors that all contribute. Now, part of this foresight model that all contribute to the reasons why people make the food choices they do and people are, Mm. and the barriers and the limitations that prevent people from accessing the food that they might want to or need to in order to improve their health. Essentially, again, if you're just saying that sugar is the cause of everything, it is really fucking insulting and wrong. It, it 
often is. You know, there's no other way to say that. It's just it, it's a really daft interpretation of, of what's going on in the world. You know, I, I actually remember I read this um, paper ages ago and I, I tried really hard to find it. I can't find it anywhere because I have like a gazillion PDFs on my computer and I couldn't find it through this. But even if we were to allow for the same amount of calories consumed now to say 30 years ago, um, weight gain has increased, which infers that there's a whole bunch of other stuff going on, like, you know, physical activity. I mean, physical activity is another one that really, really grinds my gears. People are like, I'll just move more. Not everyone can do that, okay? Not everyone can do that because, uh, you know, it's very ableist, obviously, but not everyone can do that, you know, because not everyone has a safe space to exercise. Um, not everyone has time. And, you know, don't mm-hmm. at me with like, you know, you can always find time. No, not everybody can, okay? Like, you know, if you have the privilege of just having one job, um, perhaps you don't have a ton of children or if you do, you have childcare, um, all those sorts of things, you know, you you can find time. But if you are not that person, then, yeah, that can happen. There are, you know, there's all these other, you know, things like, you know, environmental impacts. I'm talking specifically about, you know, things like climate change, you know, air pollution, you know, epigenetic factors, so on and so forth. You know, it's, it's actually, it's ridiculous. And I think the biggest thing for me that... Um, that really sort of put a nail in the coffin of this idea that sugar is the sole reason for our weight is that sugar consumption has actually decreased <laughs> with time. You know, awkward. <laughs> right, exactly. We are eating less sugar today than we did 30 years ago. Yep. So what the fuck documentary? What are you going to do about that? Yeah, it, it, it's ridiculous. You know, I think, I think you know, really the, the, the social determinants of health are something that we don't speak about because, you know, they are complicated and they are really hard to unravel. And, you know, I, I know when I sort of sit down and think about, okay, look, you know, I'm, I'm doing this as part of my research, trying to design something that's going to help people be more physically active. Um, you know, when you try and sit down and think about all of the possible barriers that someone might have to overcome in order to walk for, say, 20 or 30 minutes a day, it's overwhelming. It's huge. It is so, so insurmountable sometimes, or it seems that way. Um, and really what we what we actually need, if, we, if we're going to be serious about improving people's health, and we're not talking about improving people's weight, we're talking about improving people's health here. Mm-hmm. A very important distinction. Very important distinction. You know, it is actually going to take more than cutting out sugar, more than something on Netflix. It's going to take a coordinated societal approach um, to 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 achieve any kind of, of end game. You know, it's just uh, such reductive, unhelpful thinking. Mata, mata, mata. <laughs> I know it's true I think it sounds very drastic but if we want to improve people's health what we need to do is to help them overcome the various barriers that from society that are preventing them from being able to access this and being able to achieve this in other words we need to reduce inequality and that's where I think this is one of the issues with this whole conversation is that that immediately becomes political even though it shouldn't be. Yes. Basic basic human rights should not be political and yet they have become political. And so this is why instead we focus on things like food, we focus on things like moving more because these are more comfortable, palatable conversations than the fact that we need a more equal society where people have more equal access to, ver- to healthcare, more equal access to various different open spaces, housing, education, employment. 
I mean, income is one of the biggest factors that affects your health. We see something like weight and health as being very much dictated by lifestyle choices. And I know this because when I did my research for my second book, I asked people to fill out a survey which, which, which asked them to basically state what they think affects our health. And the vast majority of responses were something like, oh, it's, you know, it's like 50% food, 25% exercise and 25% stress. When in actual fact, the most significant factor that affects our health is not lifestyle, is not things like diet and exercise. That is actually less than 25% of what determines our health. The rest are factors that are really outside of our control. And what is often left out of this conversation on health and on weight is the huge disparity between high and low income families, because income is one of the biggest factors that affects our health. Though the life expectancy difference between the most and the least deprived areas in the UK is nine years for men and seven years for women. So the lower an individual's social position, the poorer their health is likely to be. And so this is why these social determinants of health can influence our health in so many different ways, including our health behaviors through things like food choice and exercise. But at the end, any any quote unquote unhealthy behaviors are usually not the cause of poor health. They are the end point of a long chain of cause and effect in people's lives that begins with something like income or begins with something like access to education and ends with someone not being able to access fruits and vegetables. Oh, so all, all these choices, they, they do not happen in a vacuum, okay? They happen in a context um, and, and that is something that's really important. I think if you actually went through your day and thought about the context in which you're making the decisions around what you eat or whether you exercise and have a think about those, um, you, know, you might get a bit of a, an inkling as to what it might be like in a different situation, in a different, a really different environment. So, yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly. There is just so much more going on. I think it's also really important to say, um, just coming back to, to weight and health as well, weight is also not the sole determinant of health. Um, you know, it, it, it is, uh, you know, and even if we were to, mm-hmm. you know, say uh, whatever your body size is, you know, even being able to participate in some of these, you know, so-called healthy behaviours, you know, even to just increasing your vegetable intake, um, even just to be able to be more active, irrespective of what happens to your weight, your health can improve. And we, I'm actually talking about mental and physical health in the one one breath there. So I, I think it's it's actually really important that we start sort of, you know, reframing the conversation in so many different ways and, and trying to get people to be to be more healthy, um, to enable them to, to be more healthy. So, yeah. Mm. Actually, I've got a really great example of that. Like a really great example of that is when people engage in health behaviors and then lose weight as a result, their health improves. When people have liposuction and don't change their behaviors, their health does not improve. That is correct. Which essentially means that just removing some fat from your body does not have the same effect that eating more fruits and vegetables or engaging in all these behaviors does. That is really important to point out because what it suggests is that it's the these behaviors that are more likely to have an impact even if someone doesn't lose weight rather than just sucking some weight out of their belly. Correct. That is such an important point to make. And also within that context, of course, 
again comes these barriers that prevent people from being able to do that in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. Look, you know, I think also important to say we understand that there are some times when our weight does impact on our health and they are, you know, they do happen. So we're not, again, this is a nuanced conversation and we're trying to sort of give broad strokes here that are less broad and less inaccurate than... (laughs) than the film does but you know we're trying to just kind of you know give people an overview of why the 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 thinking around the thinking around you know weight what causes our weight and 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 the associated health impacts there are are a bit different just as a as a great example of that like picture it like this you've got a puzzle in front of you Mm -hmm. weight is one piece of that puzzle but this is a thousand piece puzzle. So it's a little bit more complicated. You're just based on that one piece of your puzzle. You're not actually going to be able to see what the overall picture is. Yeah. There is not simply one square image and that is weight and that equals health. It is a single piece of the puzzle. It is a part of it, but it is only a small part and there are many other factors. And when we just focus on this one puzzle piece, we don't actually get to see the overall picture very clearly. True. So here's something that comes up in the film and I'm going to jump around a little bit here because one of the things that they talk about and they talk about, they bring it up because it's a real phenomenon, but they kind of um, conveniently leave it alone because it doesn't fit with their narrative. And that is this thing that they call toffee. Now, toffee stands for thin outside, fat inside. And I can say with hand on my heart, I've never heard a healthcare professional use that term because it's it's yucky. <laughs> like it's just like, ugh, mm-hmm. and toffee, ugh, ridiculous. Um, the, the correct term is metabolically unhealthy normal weight. Um, so that's the, the clinical term. But basically what it's saying, whatever you want to call it, is that people who appear to be slim uh, have, you know, metabolic diseases or, or diseases that we sometimes, you know, I'm not a massive fan of this term, but we call lifestyle diseases, but they're most appropriately called non-communicable diseases. So things like diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, um, heart disease, stroke, Da, 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 all those sorts of things, right? Um, so they talk about it in the film. They're like, they, they're using it to to say that the reason that these people are toffees uh, is all to do with their sugar intake. Mm, sort of, not not quite. A- again, it's coming back to this sort of complex, you know, biopsychosocial model of, of illness and disease. But a lot of the time, those people who who fit that, you know, slim yet still have type 2 diabetes or something like that, those people are, you know, have a significant genetic component to it. Um, they are much less likely to be physically active. They're more likely to be smokers, all these kinds of things. So we're talking about two totally, completely different populations. But also the thing that annoys me the most about them bringing up is, first of all, that term. You can obviously tell I'm not a big fan of that. But also... They just kind of drop it in there to sort of say, and sugar's to blame, and then they quickly run away from it because it doesn't, like, fit with everything else that they're saying. I was like, what, what, what just happened? I feel like I just got slapped with a wet fish and then someone ran away. <laughs> yeah, and also what they have also then conveniently ignored is the reverse, which is what is commonly, I guess the clinical term would be the metabolically healthy obese. That is the clinical right. term. What is essentially what they are, what that means is someone who is fat and yet healthy, because apparently that is such a weird phenomenon that it (laughs) needs a special term when actually it's just a human being who happens to be fat and happens to be healthy. Wow. Revelation. Yeah. 
I mean, Lizzo. Look at Lizzo. Fuck's sake, if you ever need a good example of some of how people can be fat and healthy, which by the way is very, you know, is very much possible, Lizzo exists. Have you ever seen someone do so much exercise? Fucking hell, it's incredible. I could not do what she does, and my body is much smaller. <laughs> I mean, she's amazing, and she's a very great example of how you can be in a larger body and also be very healthy. I just had a thought pop into my head. Do you know the other thing about this like term about being fit but fat is I always I, I just sort of think that it's a reflection on what we think fatness looks like. Because I've heard plenty of people say casually, look, I'm so fat, but it's okay, I go to the gym. And they are teeny tiny humans. Um <laughs> like it's just such a indictment on what we think um you know, the ideal body type. Oh my gosh, I'm going off on a tangent here. But <laughs> it's such a um and it's such an indictment on what we think the ideal body type looks like, which is, you know, um, Instagram model, uh, male and female, um, and particularly for, you know, a, a white Caucasian society. Um, and, and, you know, they, they, it just completely ignores the fact that, you know, what we consider to be fat is actually not at all fat. Like it's just such a completely messed up relationship we have with our own bodies and other people's bodies and the perceptions thereof. Oh, I'm on a rant now. <laughs> yeah, no, so, so true. Um, I, I guess yeah, one of the other things I think that, that came up, which I had to have a bit of a giggle about because it's so dramatic, like I thought they were going to turn on the Jaws music, was this you know, crap, <laughs> crap around like life expectancy. They're like, this is going to be the first generation of children that are going to like you know, die before their parents. I'm like, can you be any more emotive? All these parents watching are going to be like, oh, my God, I'm going to have to, do I need a funeral plan for my 12-year-old? Like what was that? <laughs> oh, my God, this is a claim that pisses me off so much. I've done some digging on this because this really pisses me off. And what essentially seems to be the case is that if you trace back the origins of this claim, which has been repeated and repeated and repeated in numerous var- numerous sources, whether it's you know, whether it's sometimes research, sometimes media media outlets or social media as well, what it essentially traces back to is some old white guy's opinion, <laughs> not not fact, opinion. This guy looked at the looked at the state of the world and said, "I think this is what's going to happen." And guess what? As usual, old white men are wrong. Mm. He was so wrong because it has that it has <laughs> not happened. And it's ridiculous that this one guy's opinion has led to this huge dissemination of misinformation just because he decided that his opinion needed to be heard by the entire fucking world, even though it is really wrong. Life expectancy has not gone down. People are, you know, kids are still expected to live longer than their parents just perhaps not by as much of a gap as they would have been in previous generations. So life expectancy is slowing down. It definitely hasn't reversed for sure. No, no. I think the US had like a a, a bit of a dip, but that was really, again, I know this is going to come as a shock. It was really multifactorial. There are a lot of things going on. There was some, you know, increases in, you know, um, things like violent deaths as well. Um, there's also some increases in some some non-communicable diseases because generally that's what we die of anyway these days because we got um, typhoid and cholera under control. Um but also the US has a really big issue with anti-vaxxers and so there's probably more people dying because they're not vaccinating their kids. 
Touche. You know, in Australia, you know, we have the same data. You know, there is a slowing down. There is a slowing down. And, you know, part of that is because, you know, the, the massive increase in life expectancies came, you know, because people got healthier. Uh, and a lot of the reasons that they got healthier was that they were surviving diseases that would have killed them 30 or 40 years ago because medical care really improved vastly. You know, cardiac care is a really good example of that. So, you know, they, 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 slow, they are slowing down because we're not having those major, major jumps that we had um, in the past at the moment. Because vaccines. Yeah. That's <laughs> right. You know, um, so th- those those kinds of those kinds of statements are, are really that then they're very misleading. And you know, a life expectancy is also it's an estimate. So at the time you're born, we can say, okay, you know, a child born in 1990 is likely to live till whatever age, male or female. Um, that's an average. There are going to be people who exceed that. There are going to be people who who um, you know, unfortunately, passed away earlier than that. It, it's 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 a calculation. It's a prediction and really we don't know that for sure until it actually happens so we don't know is it possible that kids might be getting or younger people or people people in general might be getting more chronic illnesses yes yes that's possible yes that's true um that's a different conversation but you know it doesn't mean that their life expectancy is necessarily increasing i thought i just thought that was a real fear-mongering kind of statement designed to i don't know sell life insurance to children I don't know. Um, yeah. Also, I mean, this. I mean, this. This probably sounds a little bit controversial, but people have to die of something. People do. People do. That's true. Um, you know. Um, and a lot of people who who a few generations ago would have died of things like measles and polio and all these things, they're now because of vaccines. By the way, even mm. though I know I keep banging on about this, because of vaccines, they're actually not dying of those, and instead, they're dying of things that come later in life. Heart disease, cancer, strokes. Exactly. Mm. And that's because people are living longer yeah. and people do in the end have to die of something. <laughs> and that's not to say that this is good, but it is the truth. People eventually do have to die of something. I, I think it's important to say, you know, even though um, even though we know that, you know, like we, we think the life expectancy is probably, you know, on at least stable, um, you know, we do, you know, the, we do want people to be healthy for, across their whole lifespan. But again, this feeds into our previous conversations about, you know, what actually causes health. But, you know, we do want people to be mindful of their future health from a from an early age but you know not with the pressure of um fed up documentary playing in the background one size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on same goes for healthcare. that's why united healthcare offers flexible budget-friendly coverage for medical vision dental and more learn more at uh1.com Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
Alright, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. Which I guess brings me to the next thing they talk about a lot is that kids are having heart attacks and strokes all the time now. That's not quite accurate. That's really not quite accurate. The one thing that is accurate that is happening more often is kids are getting more type 2 diabetes. So when I went to medical school, and yes, I'm a bit old, but I'm not that old. Um, (laughs) That was, it was, it wasn't a thing that happened. Kids did not get type 2 diabetes. So two main types of diabetes, type 1, which is basically an autoimmune disease. Your pancreas goes out to lunch because it gets attacked by your own body. It doesn't produce any insulin. That tends to be diagnosed pretty early in childhood. And type 2 which was basically due to the fact that your body doesn't respond to insulin. Like it, it, it's like a lock and key mechanism to let glucose into cells. Um, and the key, I don't know, the key gets bent. Let's call it that. The key gets bent and the glucose can't get in. <laughs> so, you know, the, that's a very, two di- very different type of diabetes. And, and diabetes, type 2 diabetes used to be called adult onset diabetes. And we do see it in kids now. Um, I do think that is a worry. Um, because, uh, you know, the longer you have to live with diabetes, the more, you know, you are exposed to the potential problems with it. Um, but the, the talk about, you know, high blood pressure it hasn't really increased, um, high cholesterol hasn't really increased, kids aren't dropping dead of heart attacks and strokes, um, you know, that's kind of, a, again, it's, it's they're sort of being a bit free and loose with the with the science there and extrapolating it to all these kinds of different things. So I'm going to put that in a, in a sort of like a, mm, nah, not really kind of category. Mm. And also, you know, that sugar has an indirect association with type 2 diabetes. It is not seen as a cause in that sense. You know what is seen as a significant cause of type 2 diabetes? Poverty. Sit on that for a second. Shit that, you know, you can't necessarily just change by, you know, cutting out the daily Coke or whatever. <sighs> Which, type so of frustrating. Coke? Which type of Coke are you talking about? Well, I know there's so many types now. There's so many types now. I like, I prefer Diet Coke. No, I meant I mean, Coca-Cola or cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot that sugar was cocaine. <laughs> Silly me. Oh, it's basically the same thing, isn't it? Basically the same thing. Um, so like um, like most documentaries, of course, we have this uh, really emotional collection of stories from people whose lives are apparently going to be changed by the documentary's teachings. Um, and there's, I think there's four kids in this film, and they're sort of teenagers, they're adolescents, um, they're kind of sad, like, you know, they're always a bit, you know. It's so sad. They're crying to the camera and it's really heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. And it's heartbreaking because they're being bullied by and large. That's what they're mostly, you know, worried about, like what what the other kids at school say. So kids at school, be nice. Um, but, you know, the, there's... These are all kids who are in bigger bodies. Um, You know, they show them, I think the way they show these kids is really interesting. You know, some of the kids they show being really active despite, you know, Mm. the the bullying and stuff that they get and and despite the perception that 
that these kids, you know, would clearly because of their size just sit around all day doing nothing. Um, and, but one kid they do show right, really sedentary is uh, a kid called Joe. So Joe ends up getting bariatric surgery at the end of the film. Mm. That was hard to watch for me. I found that quite difficult to watch um, mm-hmm. because, I mean, a kid that young having literally having been cut open and their organs modified in that way was just that was really challenging. I, d- I, I did not enjoy watching that. No, I don't think anyone should enjoy watching that, you know, regardless of, of what you think. You know, no one wants a kid to have an operation, like, ever. It's, it's you know, well, anyone really, but particularly kids. Um, so Joe jo undergoes some sort of bariatric surgery. We've never shown what kind of bariatric surgery. So bariatric surgery is commonly called weight loss surgery. And I want to give a shout out um, to Dr. Kim Steele, who is a colleague of mine who specialises in adolescent bariatric surgery. She was so kind to send me like her thoughts and and a whole bunch of research on the topic uh, and you know she's superstar uh, so thank you Kim um, so Kim and I talked about about this but the the yeah you don't sort of see what kind of bariatric surgery he gets but basically it's usually done via keyhole surgery so you get three or four little you know like one centimeter one and a half centimeter incisions on your tummy um, and there's a whole different you know, group of, of bariatric surgeries that you can have. You can have a gastric band, which um, is not very popular, but it's basically a tube that sits around the stomach and makes it smaller. Um, there's a uh, another one called um, gastric bypass surgery. Um, there's another one called Ruan-Y surgery. Um, there's um, all, all these sorts of different types. But basically what they're trying to do is to reroute the stomach and also make it smaller so that they get this feeling of fullness a lot quicker um, and then they, they lose a lot of weight. And whether you're talking about adults or kids, like to qualify for bariatric surgery is a big deal. And one of the things I, I hate, I really, really grinds my gears, um, and this comes from my colleagues um, you know, in all healthcare professions but also from the general public that bariatric surgery is the easy way out. It is not. It is not the easy way out. Um, and if I hear someone say that, I'm liable to slap them because it's a big deal. And it's not just a big deal because we're talking about major surgery but bariatric surgery and bariatric surgery programs are actually really ahead of, their, ahead of the curve um, in that they take care of the whole family they um, have a psychologist, they have an exercise physiologist, they have a physician who looks after their short-term and long-term health, um, they have a nutritionist or a dietitian. like they have the whole shebang, which a lot of other specialties don't access. So they actually do a really good job of trying to tackle some of these complex things that we've kind of alluded to. Um, and usually to, to qualify for bariatric surgery, you have to be able to demonstrate that you can um, be compliant and adherent to that treatment. And in the case of adolescents and kids, that means your family as well, because, you know, kids don't often have the say of what's going on and that so the whole family gets a lot of assistance which I think is brilliant um but they also have to be above a certain weight um and they also um they depending on on how much they do weigh they will and that's determined by BMI um but they will also be considered for surgery if they have things like type 2 diabetes and I think from the film that's what Joe had to happen so look this is not something that anyone takes lightly 
Um, and I think I just want to dispel that myth. Um, you know, and bariatric surgery is quite good for reducing, um, the, you know, trying to help things like type 2 diabetes go into remission. Um, there's some research which I think is quite different to the adult population that kids are very um, – kids actually have really good – psychosocial outcomes from it uh, even though they know it's hard work but you know quite different to, to adults but it's a major surgery there are complications there are lifelong considerations you know they have to take multivitamins and you know b12 and so on for the rest of their lives because the way their their gastrointestinal tract is routed means that they're at risk for some some deficiencies um, you know there's other considerations like gallstones a whole bunch of other things but I, I think that I think that the way it was portrayed in the film, I, I don't like the way they portrayed that kid. They made him look like the reason he was undergoing this was because he just sat around all day. Um, they didn't show him being active at all. You know, they made it seem like a bit of a cop-out and it's not the case. Um, I, I just, I thought I wasn't really, yeah, I, I was really uncomfortable watching it as well. But I want people to understand that it's not... I don't know, it's not a cop-out, it's not an easy way out and it's not something that's taken lightly by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and I, I just I just felt a bit unhappy with how they kind of portrayed it in the film. Yeah. And also, I mean, I personally have quite mixed feelings about bariatric surgery in general um, because of the people who I've worked with. And I think it's really important to bring this lived experience in, into the, the equation. I've worked with some people who have had bariatric surgery and don't regret it they really feel like it's been great for them and it's been really beneficial and they feel a lot better as a result. I have also worked with people who really wish they hadn't done it and who really say that it really uh, it really fucked them up because uh, what can happen is if something like a psychological psychological concerns that can contribute to things like binge eating disorder, if those aren't addressed properly, which, you know, because of the because of the variability in healthcare, not always the case. If that isn't fully addressed, people can actually be worse off afterwards than before because the actual psychological underpinnings of why they turn to food and why they do binge eat is not addressed. And so the effects of the surgery are reversed and they actually end up in the same position as they were before with the same mm -hmm. psychological issues. But having had surgery, which means their, their stomach, their organs are slightly different and it really just fucks them up because it actually ends up them leaving them with worse outcomes. Yeah. And that I think is, is a really big issue is that when these issues aren't addressed properly and recognizing yeah. that actually there are multiple cases where people do end up regaining all the weight they lose after surgery and it's not a guaranteed, irreversible, complete fix. That is not a guarantee. And I think the communication around it mm. is sometimes misleading in the sense that it is seen as that. And so I have quite mixed feelings about it in general, just because of the experience mm. that people have come to me with, that sometimes actually it is a really bad idea. I've actually had people who've asked me, like, should I do this? And I say, well, I can't make that decision for you. However, I think it's worth taking into account all these different concerns. And like the reason they're coming to me is because they have psychological issues with food and that is the thing that needs to be addressed first before they could potentially consider that as an option yeah and I, I guess I guess I you know because I obviously look after a completely different group of people you know I'm I'm not 
like I'm not on the fence and I'm not like everyone should have it either, but I think I'm more, you know, and I've worked with bariatric surgeons, which, with, you know, in this patient population before. And you're right, people can regain weight. Um, I think that that my, you know, I think I look at it, I suppose, from a, a medical perspective where this is a really good way of managing a lot of these um, complications, particularly type 2 diabetes, um, and, you know, these medical complications that are really significant and can really make people sick. Um, and, I, and I have a huge amount of respect, I think probably came across for my bariatric surgical colleagues, because like I say, I think they are so far ahead of the curve when it comes to looking after the whole patient. They are so far ahead of the curve when it comes to weight stigma um, and understanding the impacts that it has on patients' lives. Um, and, you know, I think that that's, that's a like a you know, big tick in the box for me. Uh, you know, I, I think if you take anything away from, from this is that, yeah, one, it's not a quick fix. Two, it's not without risk. Three, people aren't always happy. Of course they're not. No one's ever going to be 100% happy. Um, and, you know, and when it comes to kids, you know, yeah, it's, it's shit to watch. It was, I was so sad for this, this, you know, the family and the mum and dad are standing there to, you know, waiting for him to come out of surgery to make sure he was okay. Like if you don't feel something with that, then you are a cold, cold person. But, um, you know, I think that I think it just sort of goes to just the complexity of of, of what we, we're talking about here and, um, you know, the the – the decisions and the the pluses and minuses that need to be weighed up by every different person and you know there's no right or wrong way for for anyone to live their lives um and you know i suppose you know coming full circle bringing that back to to this documentary that's kind of what they're trying to say that there is one way for everyone to live their lives and you know it's very paternalistic and prescriptive and i'm i'm not cool with it no not at all so to kind of sum up there are some things that we have agreed with them on, and I just want to clarify exactly what that looks like. So they say it's not just energy in versus energy out, because sugar is the core culprit that causes weight gain. That is what they are saying. What we are saying is that it's not just energy in versus energy out, because we have to understand the complex barriers that prevent people from accessing and consuming a more nutritious diet, prevents people from exercising, causes stress, and leads to poor health outcomes. In other words, we have to consider the complex interplay of things like food, movement, stress, psychology, social factors, employment, education, housing, medical care, genetics, systemic oppression, and how these all limit the choices a person is able to make. So while they are focusing on a single cause that is the what of what people are eating, we are more concerned here with the why as being an incredibly important factor, not just the what. So while we do agree with them on the whole, it's not just energy in versus energy out, that's the point where we then differ in wildly different directions. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. And that's okay because we're right. We're kidding. right. <laughs> I love these in-depth conversations. I love that. I love these, you know, meandering things that we go down. I hope, I hope other people who are listening enjoy them as well. Um, again, look, we're not trying to beat you over the head and and get you to form an opinion one way or another. You know, the science is the science, but you know, some of this we bring our own experience to, and I think it's really interesting. To, for everybody to sit down and have a think about what you feel and why you feel those things and how your life is put together the way it is, you know, I think it's it's really interesting. But next week, next week we'll have a lot to say. Mm, so much. So you might have noticed what has been a little bit absent from this conversation so far has been weight stigma. 
and the sort of systemic oppression and various struggles associated with that. And that is very much what we're going to be talking about next time, because that is a huge part of this conversation in, and it's a huge part of the claim that this documentary makes that it is your fault that you're fat and it is your fault that you're unhealthy. And we say hell no to that, but you'll have to wait till next week to find out why. Indeed you will. But in the meantime, please don't forget to leave us a five-star rating because that's how people will find our little podcast and make sure you're subscribed and tell your mates, tell your mum, tell the milkman. Do people still get milkman? I don't know. Um, <laughs> but if you have questions or comments in the meantime, you can get in contact with us on email, inbadtastepodcast at gmail.com. Now we really, really love hearing from you. We love hearing your questions and discussions and um, random things that people say about the way we laugh or the <laughs> stupid things that we say. So please tell us. Um, as always, come and see us on our socials. Pixie is at Pixie Nutrition and I am at Dr. Nikki Stamp. And as usual, we will leave you references and relevant links in the show notes below. Boom. See you next week. Each month we're watching those health films that keep invading your Netflix. <laughs> um, children, if you're listening to this, be nice, okay? Um, <laughs> but I don't think any parent's going to let their kids listen to this, to be honest. Mm, it's probably good parenting, let's be honest.